0: Look, you can't prevent a, a bad actor from taking an adverse action on your campus. There are really simple steps that are out there that can sometimes be overlooked, like just being explicit about the fact that safety first. This
1: is In the Know with ACCT, the voice of community college leaders. I'm Jacob Bray. For this episode of In the Know, we interviewed Justin Collinger, a risk management consultant at United Educators. We talk about risk management on campus and the wide variety of ways colleges can prepare for risk and protect themselves. This is part of a series we curated for College Safety Month and is part one of a two-part episode.
0: Really effective risk management means that everybody is acting on risk management. It's not just one person's job. It's not two people's job. It's a culture. It's a way of thinking about uncertainty and ambiguity. It's a way of protecting yourself and your institution and your students. Um, And that means bringing together people from across campus and it means getting them on the same page and not over-complicating it. One of the things that I've seen when you bring these campus-wide cross-cutting initiatives to the fore, you either don't bring, sometimes you don't bring the right people to the table and sometimes just the process is too hard and you have subject matter experts who come to work every day to do the thing that they're expert at and they don't come to do work to do the institutional research, to do the risk management. Um, so you have to make it easy. I think back to the behavioral economics and If you want somebody to do something, these are good people who are well-intentioned and they want to do the right thing, but they also have a lot of other things to do. And so you have to make it easy.
2: So we, years ago in DC, we had an earthquake Nobody had any idea what was happening, yeah. number one. We weren't prepared because um, we didn't even think that was possible, and some of us thought it must be a bomb underground or something. Mm-hmm. We, many of us did the wrong things. There was somebody who needed assistance getting out of the building. We didn't know how to handle that. Um, everybody in our office and every other office in the area went downstairs outside and basically stood right under the windows. These things that you would never think, like an earthquake in Washington, D.C., until it happened, No one ever would have really prepared for that. I think it's about having a
0: framework in place. Um, One of the places where we see a real difference between colleges who are really successful with their crisis management plans and ones who struggle a little bit is what we tend to call an all risks approach to a crisis. You cannot possibly have a voluminous tome of every crisis management plan for every situation under the sun if you did if you managed to put that together if you managed to list together earthquakes admission scandals um, embezzlement schemes all into one book it would be unusable because it would just be too much Um, instead what i think colleges who do a really good job of crisis management do um, they pick up a framework that allows them to be flexible and so there might be really firm plans for the most common emergencies fires or some of the most catastrophic like school shootings Um, For ones like earthquakes on the East Coast and the Mid-Atlantic, you might not have an earthquake preparedness plan, and until, I think that was 2011, you might not have needed one, um, and you might not need one in the future. But what you do need is you need to have a plan that says, here's the communication flows. When something weird happens, know that you need to check your text messages, your um, email accounts, so on and so forth. Um, Have floor marshals who are trained in building evacuations and who know what to do in the event of major natural crises. Um, Have um, clear lines of communication among the leadership of the school, uh, any other key players in risk. So I'm thinking about um, the public safety directors or the police directors. And also clear lines of communication among the board, too. And so knowing that when there is a crisis, all 12 members of the board probably shouldn't raise their hands to jump up at the same time. Right. Um, know which board member and which board member serves backup as point person for a crisis, a, a natural disaster crisis, a um, legal crisis, or, or so forth.
1: You know, when we were talking to the president of the Yuba Community College District last week, one of the <clears throat> things that he said was most important that they uh, didn't realize at first, but eventually came to realize is communication. Mm-hmm. Like something that's as simple as making sure that you have a way or a channel to get in touch with your entire student body or your faculty as quickly and as efficiently as possible really makes a big difference.
0: I was talking to a public relations executive and she works exclusively in higher education. One of the things that she pointed out is that colleges are oftentimes actually pretty good at the operational response to a crisis. And that's largely because they have, um, they have subject matter experts who know what they're doing when these crises happen. And that's actually an advantage that I think education has over some of the corporate world. You become a leader in the corporate world based on your management <laughs> skills, your financial acumen, um, but you don't, aren't necessarily good at knowing what to do when something really specific to, your, to a subject area happens. Mm-hmm. Higher ed has that, and I think that's a great foundation, um, but the communications piece is often lacking. And there's a lot that goes into that, both in the health and safety of your constituents. So making sure that you have those text messages, those email communications that go out, um, but then also protecting your reputation on the back end or even enhancing your reputation because you handled a crisis really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've you, you can look at the news. You can look at Inside Higher Ed. You can look at the Chronicle, and you can see a struggle about that every week uh, coming out of some college, university, somewhere in the country. But when you're able to structure that communication flows, um, whether it's having a plan already in place for the most common types of crises or having an ex- a PR expert who's on retainer, um, who knows your mission, who knows your constituents, who knows your audiences, and I, I say audiences plural because you have your students, you have your faculty, you have your community members, particularly for community colleges, you have your legislators. Um, knowing how to handle all of those constituencies in a quick an effective way after a crisis happens is critical to protecting the reputation. And like I said, even building on that reputation moving forward.
2: Let's just start at the beginning. How, how would you qualify or define a resilient college? What, what are the, de- the most defining factors?
0: Yeah, um, you know, it's, it's funny. I don't know that there's a really good way to say that one college is more resilient than another. Um, I can't go to a college campus and say, this college is five more resilient than the other college. But that said, there is definitely a real tangible difference mm-hmm. when you're, there's a college that's really resilient versus one that's going to be flimsy in the face of crisis, frankly. Um, and I like to think of it internally and externally. I think internally and with your own staff, resilience comes from having um, executive team leaders who are flexible who are able to handle ambiguity, and who know how to communicate in a crisis. Um, When you have those kind of key baseline elements, then it becomes pretty easy, quote-unquote, easy to build um, communications plans, crisis management plans. I think that that tends to flow a little bit better. Um, When you're talking externally, a a resilient college is one who has some of that reputational capital built up. Um, I I like to think of reputational capital as almost like a currency. Mm where you're always either building it or spending it. And so if a, if when you, when, as soon as a new president comes to campus, there's a great chance for that president to build a, um, reputational capital. And so that reputational capital builds up. When there's a crisis, you spend some of that reputational capital. Hopefully you still have a positive balance and you survive to the next crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, where you see colleges and universities stumble is whenever they haven't either built up that capital or that currency or they spend it uh, repeatedly because there's too many crises. And I think to some of the big national universities and the crises they faced, I think Penn State, I think Virginia Tech, I think um, University of North Carolina and the athletics and academic scandal that they had a few years ago. These are all really respected universities. And I don't want to downplay the immediate, Im- the immediate impact that those events all had on the people who were involved. Um, obviously, what happened at Penn State, what happened at Virginia Tech was were terrible incidents that um, shattered lives, quite frankly. But if I'm thinking about the institution, they survived as institutions, and in some cases, even thrived, because they had such strong reputations uh, with their external communities. And that helped them really rebuild and Continue to be the influential organizations they are today.
2: There's some inherent spending of capital in that's beyond anybody's control, mm-hmm. but I think you said earlier uh, that all of this is really it's it's a culture, mm-hmm. risk management as a culture. Absolutely. So um, how how would you say, not not to keep um, hammering in on this, but not to qualify a resilient college, but how would you, what what are some of the factors um, or a list that, for example, board members, the president, could run down to ask themselves, am I resilient? Are, is, is our risk management in order? Are there any specifics that um, could help people sort of do a self-evaluation in those terms?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the first one is having, are there actually written plans available? And I wanna make that distinction about written plans um, because I think it's very easy for somebody to walk into a board meeting and say, we have a plan for this. Mm-hmm. Um, But what does that plan look like, I think is a great follow-up question. Um, Can I see the plan? (laughs) Uh, Do do these other key stakeholders know that this plan exists? Um, And I think those are some of the key questions. This is baseline. Do we have a resilient college? Well, you you better be able to bounce back and respond to a crisis if you're going to be resilient. I don't want to harp too much on finances because I don't think finances necessarily qualify a college as resilient, but you do need to have the, the money available to get through a crisis, whatever the case may be. If you need to hire a PR, crisis communications firm, if you need to hire attorneys, um, you need to have that flexibility. I don't want to harp on that too much as a overall characteristic because I think that that probably doesn't place the emphasis in the right spot. But then after that, it's about the, I think, again, a culture is a really hard thing to to put your finger on, um, but having the staff and the leadership who all genuinely care about risk, and I know that's a hard thing to talk about because who doesn't say they, who says they don't care about risk, um, but working as a risk management consultant for, a, for United Educators, we see plenty of leaders who say they care about risk with and don't back it up with plans and with um, an emphasis on ambiguity and an emphasis on saying, well, what if X, Y, Z happens? I think about some of the uh, sexual assault, sexual misconduct, sexual predation cases that we've been seeing in the media lately. And we continue to talk to organizations, or to colleges and universities rather, who they say it couldn't happen here. And to me that's not a risk-aware culture if you think that you're immune to really just about any risk that's out there that's a pretty good indication that you're not paying attention Um, it was really remarkable to me to see how many um, really high level leaders at um, and here i'm speaking about four-year universities but how many high-level leaders at four-year universities are kind of putting their heads in the sand um, when it comes to sexual predation and sexual assault, and then also some at community colleges and small um, private four-year institutions as well who say, couldn't happen here. We're a family. It seems, it's
1: kind of frustrating to me that, you know, it's it's so frequent, especially with the sexual assault assault stuff that the short-term plan seems to be to bury your head in the sand. And that really is a short term plan and in many instances a very, very, very <laughs> short term plan. Yeah. And the long term solution is really, you know, as simple as, you know, just starting the conversation. Yeah. Saying, hey, like you said, you know, what do we have in place? And if we don't have anything in place, let's start talking about, you know, getting something
0: in place. Right. Look, you can't prevent a, a bad actor from taking an adverse action on your campus. It's literally impossible to prevent it. However, you can reduce the likelihood of that event. You can reduce the impact of that event. Um, I worked recently with a K-12 independent school and they were kind of taken aback by the idea of reducing the impact of sexual assault on their campus. And I understand why. It's something that you, it just, it hits so close to home and it's such an emotional thing and it's so terrible for the victim. Um, but there's a really big difference between having two victims and having 20 victims. And when I talk about reducing the impact, it's about having reporting mechanisms in place that when some, when a staff member or a student says, you know, I think something might be fishy there, that it's safe for that person to raise that as a concern. And then it's also safe to conduct an, a, an investigation that is simply trying to find facts. Um, you don't want to be in a situation where Allegations are flying all over the place, of course, but I think that that is mitigated against by having a really honest investigation system where you're not trying to go out to get anybody. You're really trying to protect your students, and you're trying to protect your communities, Um, and that can be the difference between two victims and 20 victims.
2: I think also um, a couple of things that you said really stand out to me. I mean, for one thing, I think in a, in a way, if, when you're fact-finding, when you're trying to figure out what's really going on if there's an accusation, um, presuming innocence of a perpetrator, um, you're protecting them as well if you find the facts and the facts show that, you know, that there's no basis for this. Of course, people's reputations can be damaged, yes. but um, nevertheless, as, as you said, um, any extra one person who is victimized or harmed Or killed you know in some instances you it's 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 very difficult to make any excuse for um, not having gone to the trouble of doing it Um, particularly with this issue with uh, sexual misconduct on campus I am frankly really surprised that this is an issue that anybody at this point would say this doesn't happen here. Mm-hmm. Looking at the, the higher education media, um, for the past five years, I mean, the Chronicle of Higher Ed, I feel like every other cover deals with this issue in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a certain, there's there's a definite responsibility on the part of any institution to make sure that, that they have uh, protocols in place because these things do happen. Uh, so, tell me tell me about the institutions that say this doesn't happen here in a general sense how how can they think that and um how are how do they end up resisting any implementing any kind of process to protect their students
0: i mean i think it's human to be honest um and it's Because as people, we want to come to our places of work, whether it's a campus or a corporate office, it almost doesn't matter. Um, We want to come to our place of work, and we want to trust the people around us. We want to give them the benefit of the doubt. And we want to think we work in places that reflect our own values. And I would certainly hope that most people's values are ones that think that this is a place that can be safe from sexual assault and sexual misconduct.
2: This question um, that we had discussed, what sorts of risks are less common, but could pose serious threats to Mm -hmm. colleges. So, for example, talking about the personal nature, as you were, about um, sexual misconduct. For example, anything that happens among your your peers, your family, so to speak, within your community, uh, certainly a natural disaster, in a way, may may psychologically be easier to prepare for because it's objective. It's nobody's fault when a hurricane comes blowing through. Um, And then on-campus shootings. I mean, um, there are reasons why that has risen to the top of people's concerns. Mm -hmm. But uh, could you talk about what we talked about off mic, about this question, about um, less common but serious threats, and then the inverse of that?
0: I don't actually like framing it as less common but more serious threats, because I actually think as humans, we're really good at handling those. If you think about um, what some of the most common fears people have are um, things like dying in a plane crash, um, of murder, of really violent acts frankly, those are relatively uncommon. You're much more likely to die in a fire. You're much more likely to die in a car crash. And I don't know very many people who are terrified of stepping into the car every morning. And I I don't say this, listeners, as a way to try to scare you to drive to work in the morning. (laughs)
2: Um,
0: But we really do, we really, as humans, are good at the sensational, at the extreme. And thus, as a result, a lot of colleges have pretty strong procedures in place for things like school shootings. Mm -hmm. But they're not necessarily as prepared for sexual misconduct because that's something that is, kind of hits at the culture of who you are. They're not quite as prepared for things like um, workplace harassment. I mean, United Educators, it's one of the most frequent claims that we see is workplace harassment. Um, You want to think that your coworkers around you are generally good people. And particularly if you're at a high level in an organization, whether you're a board or you're an executive, um, you want to think that Um, If there is something bad in your organization, if there is workplace harassment, well, maybe it's my fault as a leader for fostering this culture. So I wanna push that thought out of my brain and I wanna trust that this is a great place. And thus it becomes very easy to overlook. Mm -hmm. Or I think about deferred maintenance. Um, I'd love to know a college, a community college in this country that doesn't have problems with deferred maintenance. You know what, I'll expand that out to four-year universities as well. Um, That is a pretty common uh, issue. Um, it can become serious. I think it it manifests itself in a regular way as non-serious issues. It manifests its way as, oh, the toilet's backed up again. Oh, the HVAC unit went out. Um, but it can also present itself as really serious things like balcony collapses. Those are things that I don't think we think about as serious risks, but they're some of the most common ones we face yeah it's kind of
1: interesting because i I was just thinking about this in comparison to city regulations Mm -hmm. about how cities maintain this type of stuff and like in new york every five years the exterior of a building has to be checked to make sure nothing's going to fall off that's interesting because what used to happen especially when um, window air conditioner units were becoming more popular is they'd be installed poorly and they'd fall out of the window and hit someone. So it's every five years that they're going around and making sure that everything's fine. And if it's not, it's immediately taken care of. And that's not the way I think uh, most schools are approaching something like that, that, you know,
0: you might not even think about on a day-to-day basis. Right. There's all these little things on campuses that have the potential to turn into really serious things. Um, I think of the admissions crisis as, or scandal as one of those, um, I'm, an, I'm a former admissions counselor, both for undergraduate and graduate uh, schools. And when that happened, I think a lot of people around me were shocked. And when I heard about it, I thought, you know, I hadn't thought that this would ever happen, but it makes perfect sense to me because you have a group of employees who are poorly paid, um, in many cases, are poorly paid, have high stress and a competitive results-driven job Um, where they are in a position of power relative to their constituents and in many cases work with those constituents behind closed doors. So to me, I was whenever I heard all of the details, I said, you know what, I hadn't thought about that before, but that makes sense. I'm not surprised. And it's ultimately a result of these structures that we have in place at many institutions that um, put people in positions where 99.9% of people handle that without any problems. But the 0.01% of people um, see an opportunity for something unethical, and they kind of jump at the opportunity when it presents itself. And I know that I'm obviously talking about a four-year college and university problem here, but this is a real trickle-down effect on community colleges. Um, I, I think of the admissions scandal as actually being a large risk for the higher ed sector as a whole. Community colleges get wrapped up in it, despite being open access and serving A large number of students nationwide um, if the federal government were to come in and say you know we're gonna start taxing um, endowments and foundations because we can't trust these organizations to manage their money and be fair to students coming in well guess who gets wrapped up in that Um, all the community colleges who have foundations all the small private four years with tiny endowments all because a few there were a few bad actors at a few large universities um, and so when we think of so some of these scandals of being removed from community colleges, it's all one sector. And when there's adverse action taken against the sector, community colleges go with it. But I also think that's a real opportunity for community colleges too. When we're thinking about some of these structural issues and some of these processes um, for community college leaders and board members to step up in their communities and say, I'm a powerful representative who can advocate for this organization that I care a lot about. Mm-hmm. And I can make the case that we are different. We are a valued contributor to this community and that we should not be um, adversely affected by the acts of others. This has been
1: part one of a two-part episode with Justin Collinger. Make sure you subscribe so you receive a notification when we release part two on Thursday. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.